addiction is a good example because you know when people are severely addicted to alcohol or drugs over the years of their addiction things slowly break down everything is slowly taken away from them you know they lose their self-respect they lose their roles in society they lose their families their partners their possessions you know their hopes for the future everything it's just like house which is you know brick by brick the house is slowly dismantled and at a certain point the house will collapse you know when enough bricks have been taken away and that happens to people to addicts that the seven chakras swirling vortices of energy positioned throughout our body from the base of the spine to the crown of the head for thousands of years this ancient wisdom has been passed on from master to disciple what are the functions of these energy centers and could these chakras help you unlock your destiny and find your true purpose welcome to my seven chakras and now your host Aditya Jai Kumar what's up action tribe AJ here host and founder of my seven chakras my seven chakras.com the show where we help you calm your mind relax your nervous system and experience deep states of bliss in today's episode we really go deep we cover topics such as spiritual awakening traumatic experiences the meaning and significance of suffering the importance of detachment and the true nature of the soul I'm really looking forward to this session and if you are too then make sure that you hit the subscribe button or the follow button that you see on your phone because it does something to the algorithm and it helps us get in front of more people and you will never miss out on an episode as a result of that and if you like what we do then please write us an iTunes rating and review because reviews make a world of a difference and they really help us spread the word so if you like this show make sure that either right now or maybe afterwards write us an iTunes review with that being said let's bring on our special guest for today Steve Taylor Steve Taylor is the author of Extraordinary Awakenings and many other best selling books he is a senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University and the chair of the transpersonal psychology section of the British Psychological Society Steve's articles and essays have been published over in over 100 academic journals, magazines and newspapers and he blogs for the Scientific American and Psychology Today. So Steve, welcome once again to our show. Hi there, great to be with you again. I know that we've chatted once before, a couple of years back, and hopefully this conversation picks up from what you spoke about and wrote about in your previous book and you spoke at least one of the themes that you explored in your last book was the different types of spiritual awakenings but I wanted to start this interview by um, understanding how it all began for you where were you born and brought up I was born in Manchester in the UK and that's where I lived away for quite a long time but I came back to Manchester and I was born in 1967 yeah that's it I'm here now in 2021 nice 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 and did you as a child always know that you wanted to be a psychologist growing up not at all no it didn't occur to me for a long time when I went to school we didn't do psychology at school even at A level At that time I wanted to be a musician. I was always very musical. I played the guitar, the bass guitar and sang. And also when I was 17 or 18, I became aware of the impulse to write. So I wanted to be a writer. I wasn't really conscious until about the age of 20, 21, you know, of the conscious that's when I had a conscious impulse to be a writer. So I didn't really get involved in psychology till a lot later on, till I was in my mid 30s. Interesting. So 
what made you made that shift from writing to then diving deeper into psychology in your mid thirties? What was the event or maybe you met somebody or what was that reason, well, that factor? I was always interested in philosophy and psychology. At the same time, psychology, you know, conventional psychology always turned me off a little bit because it seemed so kind of scientific, so statistical and so kind of neurological. You know, I was more interested in philosophy because psychology to me meant, you know, that kind of mainstream approach of statistics, experiments and so forth. But 20 years ago now, I read a book by Ken Wilber. You may have heard of the American integral theorist. And it said in his bio at the back of, uh, back of the book, Ken Wilber is the world's foremost transpersonal psychologist. And I thought, wow, what is transpersonal psychology? What is a transpersonal psychologist? I began to learn more about transpersonal psychology, and I realized that it, it was a study of spirituality from a psychological point of view. And I'd always had spiritual experiences, although I didn't understand them, at least you know, for a long time, I didn't understand them. But when I realized that you could study spirituality, you could study spiritual experiences from a psychological point of view, I thought, wow, yeah, this sounds like my cup of tea. And it sounds like, you know, really my kind of thing. Then I found that there was a, a master's degree in transpersonal psychology in Liverpool, which was close to where I was living in Manchester, about 25 miles away. So I thought, wow, this is amazing. It's the only transpersonal psychology degree in the whole of the UK. And it's right, it's very close to me. It's, you know, it felt like it was meant to be. So I studied the master's degree and I realized, yeah, this is what I'm interested in. This is my métier, as you say in French. So this is my role. This is my purpose. So I realized I became more and more immersed in transpersonal psychology. I did a PhD in transpersonal psychology. And I realized it was where, you know, where my soul was at home in, in studying spirituality. That's very, very interesting. You know, a lot of people listening to the show right now find themselves in inflection points in their career where they've done something for maybe 30, 35 years. And now they say that they're not really truly fulfilled and they want to make a shift in their career. And it seems like in your life as well, in your mid thirties, you made a, made a shift. What are your thoughts on that? Sometimes people feel, you know, I'm too late. You know, I should have thought about this in my early twenties. Right. No. Well, you know, my advice to people is it's never too late. Well, you're still alive. It's yeah. never too late. Even if you're in, in your 70s or 80s, it's never too late. Where yeah. there is time, you know, it's never too late. And, you know, people often, often have the impression, even if they're in their mid 30s, they think, oh, well, I'm, I'm quite old now. When you're in your mid 50s, like I am now, they think, wow, that's mid 30s is nothing. You've got loads of time. And it's a question of your soul's purpose, really. You know, when I, I mean, I always wanted to be a writer. That was always my main thing in life. Right. But at the same time, when I was younger, I was writing stories and novels because that was the, the world of writing that I was familiar with. So even though I was kind of fulfilling my purpose in a sense, it didn't seem quite right. And my novels and stories weren't very good. I kept getting rejected by publishers. So when I switched later on in life, probably about around the same time I discovered transpersonal psychology, I switched to writing about psychology and spirituality. And it was the same feeling I had that this is what I'm meant to be doing. This is my soul's purpose. And after that, you know, every feeling of frustration left me because I felt like I was on the right track. You know, I was where I was meant to be. So it's a really fantastic feeling when you find out where you're meant to be. And sometimes it takes a long time. It can take, you know, for me, it took, you know, 20 years of adult life before I found my purpose my real purpose, my specific purpose. And it can take even longer, you know, it could take you 30 years, but you know, the main thing is to find it eventually. That's very, very powerful. I mean, it reminds me of uh, that quote by Steve Jobs, right? You can't make sense of things looking forward. You can only connect the dots looking backwards. And it seems like your writing career played a pivotal role in your evolution as a psychologist as well, right? Because as a psychologist, you need to be able to write and articulate and express yourself. And it seems like you had a really good start. And so I'm just yeah. thinking of some people who might be doing certain things, 
but are not fully like they don't have that deep down yearning from within, hold on because that experience that you're doing that job might just be useful in your next pivot in your next career. Yeah, it's partly a question of living your authentic purpose rather than your socially conditioned purpose, because a lot of people, they do what they think is expected of, you know, they get pressure from their parents, from their peers, from their culture. And they think, you know, this is where I'm supposed to live. I'm supposed to be following this profession, you know, aiming for success and wealth. But it's not really what they're intrinsically meant to do. You know, it's not their authentic sole purpose. And if you follow your socially conditioned purpose, it always creates, it can be exciting. It gives you a sense of identity. You may attain some success. You may become wealthy. But eventually, a sense of frustration overcomes you. You know, this feeling of you're not living authentically. Your soul is being repressed. Your deep yearnings are being repressed. So often people reach that point in midlife, you know, the sort of 40s and 50s. Sometimes it manifests itself as a midlife crisis. It's when you're not living in the way that you're meant to live. You're living inauthentically. So at that point, you know, suddenly the yearnings of your soul that you've repressed, they begin to emerge inside you. And often people do make changes to their lives, maybe sometimes not the right changes, you know, but often, you know, sooner or later, your soul's purpose will manifest itself. And in your book, in writing a book, in the research, you spoke to and interviewed many people, right, who've had these extraordinary spiritual awakenings. So firstly, what is your definition of a spiritual awakening? A spiritual awakening is an expansion and an intensification of awareness. Sometimes that's interpreted in the context of spiritual traditions as enlightenment or satori or bodhi or samadha, samadhi sahaja, sahaja samadhi, sorry, uh, and so forth. You know, every spiritual tradition has their own conception of this shift into a more expansive awareness. But as a psychologist, I study it outside the context of spiritual traditions. And it's an expansion of awareness in lots of different areas. It's an expansion of awareness in terms of perception, because the world becomes much more real, much more beautiful, almost as if a veil of familiarity has suddenly been pulled away and suddenly, wow, you're seeing the reality of things. It's an expansion of awareness in subjective terms, because you journey deeper into your own being. You find depths within yourself that you weren't aware of. You find energies and potentials inside yourself that you were never aware of. It's an expansion of awareness in, you know, in terms of empathy and compassion, you become much more connected to other people. You sense other people's sufferings, you want to help other people, you become more altruistic, more empathic, and so forth. And it can happen gradually through years of following a spiritual practice or a spiritual path, or just a certain way of living, which facilitates spiritual awakening or spiritual development. Or it can happen very suddenly and dramatically, which it does in the, in the cases I talk about in the book, you know, very explosive spiritual awakenings. And in your book, you write about something called the TTT, which is transformation through turmoil. So what's the history behind this? And how did psychologists sort of start studying this phenomenon? You know, I think psychologists were aware of it for a long time. There's a famous book called uh, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. You know that book? One of the best, probably the, one of the best psychology books of all time. It's about Viktor Frankl's experiences in concentration camps in Germany in the Second World War, where he, you know, he lived through the most abject suffering and deprivation. But he became aware of the importance of having a sense of purpose and meaning. And through that, he felt as though he enabled, he, well, on the one hand, a sense of purpose enabled him to survive, but they also enabled him to grow in the context of his suffering. So later on, psychologists began to study that as 
post-traumatic growth, which is probably one of the most well-researched concepts in, in modern psychology. And it's all about how going through any kind of trauma, whether it's bereavement or divorce or depression or addiction, uh, even you know warfare, incarceration, in the long term, those experiences can lead to personal development. You become more appreciative of your life. You have deeper relationships and you live with a, a greater sense of purpose and meaning and so on. So what I call transformation through turmoil could be seen as a more a very intense form of post-traumatic growth. It's similar, but it's much more intense. It's much more dramatic. It doesn't happen gradually. It happens, it normally happens in a single moment of transformation in the midst of intense suffering. So it could happen to a soldier on a battlefield just before a battle or in the midst of a battle. It could happen to a prisoner who's been incarcerated for years and in a state of deep suffering. It could happen to a person who's been severely addicted to alcohol or drugs for many years, you know, when they reach rock bottom. But it's a sudden shift in identity which those people undergo. I contemplated on the term rock bottom, you know, a couple of weeks back, actually. And I thought of myself, do we ever reach a level of rock bottom? Right? Because no matter where we are, there's always something that we can lose, right? And <laughs> on the contrary, there's always something that we can feel grateful for. Like, well, where's the rock bottom, right? Like, when do we yeah. realize that this is rock bottom, right? Yeah, it reminds me, there's a Bob Dern line where he says, uh, when you think you've lost everything, you find that there's always a little more you could lose. But um, I, I think there is actually a point where you don't necessarily have to think it in, term, in terms of loss, but there's a point where people break down because so much has been taken away that they break down, their, their identity collapses. And addiction is a good example because, you know, when people are severely addicted to alcohol or drugs, over the years of their addiction, things slowly break down. Everything is slowly taken away from them. You know, they lose their self-respect. They lose their roles in society. They lose their families, their partners, their possessions, you know, their hopes for the future. Everything, it's just like house, which is, you know, brick by brick, the house is slowly dismantled. And at a certain point, the house will collapse, you know, when enough bricks have been taken away. And that happens to people, to addicts, that so much is taken away from them. They lose so much that their identity collapses. And that's probably equivalent. That's probably what people basically mean by rock bottom, where their identity collapses. But uh, what I found in my research is that when a person's identity collapses, sometimes, not always, but occasionally, a new identity emerges inside them. Just like as if it's been waiting in a dormant state to emerge, just like a chick, which is ready to hatch from an egg. Yeah. You know, Russell Brand, he speaks pretty eloquently about addiction because, you know, he was addicted at one point and obviously he went through his version of rock bottom. And, you know, I think he does mention that addiction can be seen in so many different ways, right? Because deep down, a person who might be addicted to alcohol or cocaine or heroin or some other of those drugs, deep down, they are addicted to that feeling, right? Mm -hmm. That feeling of love, which maybe they are not getting in one way or the other. And that addiction provides them a temporary feeling of deep connection, uh, maybe deep oneness and feeling like they are right? Like a spiritual awakening, sort of. Yeah, I think you could say that it's a kind of, uh, you know, an artificial oneness. I think it does give people a feeling of oneness, but it's very artificial. It's temporary. It is a kind of like a, an ersatz form of spiritual awakening, a kind of uh, facsimile of spiritual awakening. But it's not the real thing, which is why it always leads to devastation and more, even more suffering. 
it only works for a certain amount of time. Every addict says that it's great in the beginning, but it, you know, after a certain point, it stops working. The basic yearning behind it may be similar to the yearning that people have for spiritual awakening or spiritual development. It's just trying to satisfy the yearning in the wrong way, taking the wrong route to the destination. Exactly. So deep down, they have that yearning, they have that seeking spirit, but they've just found it in the wrong places. And hopefully they come across maybe the right mentor or the right community group of people. And maybe they come across something like meditation or breath work or yoga. And all of a sudden, to a great extent, they're able to fulfill that. But now it's good for them. It's good for their health and their mental well-being as well. That's true. And also, I think it's important to remember that most addicts have got a history of trauma, usually childhood trauma, like physical Mm -hmm. or sexual abuse during childhood or emotional deprivation during childhood. So I think that is often at the root of addiction. So in a way, they're trying to deal with their trauma. They're trying to medicate themselves to deal with their trauma. And we've already spoken about the importance of post-traumatic growth while you're medicating yourself. You can only undergo post-traumatic growth through acknowledging and facing up to your trauma, feeling your trauma, allowing your trauma to manifest itself. The kind of post-traumatic growth which could lead to spiritual development is being repressed by addiction. And according to your research, what is the greatest loss that one can experience? There were lots of different kinds of loss. There are some very powerful forms of trauma and loss, which are quite unusual because not many human beings are in the situation where they experience them. For example, warfare is a very intense form of turmoil and loss. And it it is quite closely associated with spiritual experiences. I collected many examples of soldiers who'd had spiritual experiences on the battlefield. Some soldiers who'd undergone a process of spiritual awakening over many years of, you know, being in the army. Um, Obviously, not many human beings experience that situation. Incarceration is similar. A lot of prisoners undergo spiritual development. I've got two chapters in the book. I found so many examples of spiritual awakening prisoners that I couldn't, you know, had to expand it to two chapters. But again, not many human beings experience incarceration, fortunately. But I think amongst all of the common human experiences that we have, bereavement is probably the most powerful because we all experience bereavement, obviously, at some point, often many times in our lives. And, you know, particularly when you lose somebody who's central to your life, like a partner or a child or a parent, then it's such a a major upheaval in your life. It's like an earthquake that totally disrupts everything in your life. And that earthquake is obviously completely devastating. It's very painful. But once the ground settles again, which may take months or years, then everything begins to look completely different. Everything may have rearranged itself and you may feel that you are a different person living in a different world, often in a a more meaningful world, a kind of deeper and richer world. You know, that's one of, that's quite a common after effect of bereavement. That's very, very true. Actually, this interview comes at a very opportune moment because earlier this year, in fact, just uh, three months back, uh, my mom uh, passed away from this physical world. And you know, obviously, like you pointed out, it is uh, really hard, an experience that one has to go through. And I was actually reviewing my quarter this year, um, you know, last three months in terms of how things went. And obviously, some of my goals that I had set, for, set forth for my business and my life weren't met yet. One thing that I did not realize was that I managed to not go into a bout of, you know, deep stress or depression. I managed to stay actually thrive through this situation. And for Mm. people who are going through a similar situation, sometimes it's not just about, you know, hitting your milestones or hitting your goals. Sometimes you need to take some time to Mm. take care of yourself and really make sense of your place in life and here on earth. That's true. Yeah. I think after a a major 
event like bereavement, it's really important to have that quiet time mm -hmm. to acknowledge the situation and to integrate the situation. And that's when you'll experience post-traumatic growth. I think a lot of people, when they undergo traumatic events, they have what I call the avoidance impulse. Mm -hmm. entirely naturally they don't want to face up to the pain of the situation to the reality of the situation and that's completely natural because nobody wants to experience pain but if you do that then you won't harness the transformational potential the transformational potential of any traumatic event like bereavement arises naturally when you acknowledge the situation you acknowledge your painful feelings and you accept the situation you accept your feelings you open yourself to the reality of the predicament Mm -hmm. uh, so acceptance is a major part of the, the process of transformation. Transform your home in one weekend with paint from Menards. Get a paint that combines durability and gorgeous color. Dutch Boys DuraClean Interior Paint and Primer in One offers stay clean technology, making your home stay beautiful and clean longer. And with Dutch Boys Easy Opening Smooth Pouring Container, transforming your home has never been easier. Save big money on Dutch Boy paints and head into Menards to get your paint project started today. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You say that the amount of suffering that we experience, especially in the case of bereavement, largely depends on our understanding and relating to death. Because on one side, let's say a person feels that death is the end of it and the person ceases to exist. There's no concept of self beyond that. Then mm -hmm. that loss is going to be much more heavier compared mm -hmm. to another person who's done years, years and understanding of death and the fact that we are not our bodies or emotions or thoughts and the soul mm -hmm. is essentially eternal. Then at least that person can hold on to some essence, right? Yeah. At least intuitively of that person who has just physically passed away. That loss mm -hmm. is not that deep. I agree. I think, again, the important factor is acceptance. I think if you believe that death is the end, right. and it's the end of uh, your encounter, your potential encounters with, with that person, you'll never experience their presence again mm -hmm. for the rest of eternity, then it is a more painful experience. And it's more difficult to accept. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to accept that you'll never encounter a person for the rest of eternity. There's just this sudden break, and that's the end of it all. It's difficult to acknowledge and accept that. And I think that's why in our culture, in our materialist culture, death has become a taboo subject because yeah. people don't want, to, don't want to face the enormity of that break. So I agree with you that, you know, when you do have a different perception of death, that sounds like you do and I do too, that death is not necessarily the end, that it is possible that a person's identity and consciousness in some form continue, then it isn't such a major break. It is also incredibly painful and sad. Um, yeah, I, I lost my father 18 months ago. So, you oh, know, it is a very sorry. painful and, and sad experience. 
as I know. But, you know, I sense that in some way, in some form that I can't really conceive of, my father is still present, he's still conscious somewhere. So it's not a complete break, and therefore it's easier to accept. Very, very powerful. And what's your understanding of death? What happens to a person according to you or according to what you've come across so far after they pass away? Well, funnily enough, I've just been writing about this. Uh, I've been doing some research on this topic. Mm. Um, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, we can't say for certain. We'll find out one day, but we can't say at the moment for certain. But there are some kind of indications. I used to believe that after death, the individual person did not survive. I used to believe that a person's identity would dissolve away and become part of universal consciousness, um, which is, you know, some spiritual traditions have a similar view to that. When we are born, we are an expression of universal consciousness. And when we die, we return to a universal consciousness. So there's a kind of circularity. We emerge and we return from universal consciousness. But, but as we merge back into universal consciousness, our identity dissolves away. We cease to be individuals. So I used to believe that. And I think, you know, that's quite an appealing view at, it's nice to be a person, but it's also nice to think that one day your, your personhood will slowly fade away and you'll dissolve into oceanic consciousness. That's quite nice. But actually, the evidence suggests that that's not actually the case. The evidence suggests that at least for a certain amount of time in Earth years, um, our identity will continue after death. So that my views here are based on evidence from reincarnation studies when young children give incredibly detailed information about previous lives, and they also re-experience events from previous lives. They draw events. And this is children who are two or three years old, who are too young to absorb information, you know, or to be fed information by their parents. It is obviously genuine information that they're recording or experiencing. And also, there are lots of scientific studies with very high-level mediums who give incredibly precise and detailed information in conditions where they couldn't use fraud or, or influence to get the results. So actually, there's a whole range of research that suggests that after death, our identity does actually continue in some form in some other realm. What about you? What's your... Yeah, yeah, I, yeah exactly. I've done a lot of research about this. And my understanding, at least from what the ancient Vedic scriptures suggest is that we exist on multiple different levels, right? Like on the physical level and then on a soul level. And what I found out is what you also found out is that at a certain level, our personal identity still persists, even in at another level, at another dimension, in so much as the person who is still remaining, especially if the person is close to the person who passed away, let's say their children or their spouse, husband, wife, you know, through intuition, they are able to communicate and receive messages from that person who passed away. Like in myself, I've got a very powerful example. So a couple of weeks after my mom passed away from this physical place, I was coming back home that evening and it was dark all around. I was uh, walking on the pavement, coming back home. And I asked this very profound question to my mom. And I said that, you know, I miss you. If you are truly here, and if you can hear my voice, then give me some sign, give me some message that you can hear me. It could be intuitively, but let me know that you're here. And I sent a very strong sort of message to my mom. And you won't believe it. I just turned right. And as soon as I turned right across the street, I could see a billboard. And that billboard said, mother, and not just mother, it said, mother India. So to me, that was a powerful confirmation that wow. you know, she's still here. Yeah, so. and your mother was actually in India. Wow. She was in India. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, those stories are very common. In fact, I found out in my research that around two-thirds of people experience these kind of after-death communications, as they're called. 
Mm -hmm. Sometimes a very direct vision of somebody, sometimes an interaction, sometimes just a voice that they hear. Often just a smell, like they sense a person's smell. Yeah. Or sometimes there's a, some kind of symbolic communication. But right. yes, you know, if, if you study the evidence open, with an open mind, it becomes impossible to doubt the, you know, the existence of some form of afterlife. Right, right, right. And you write about NDEs, near-death experiences, in your book and uh, their potency for a spiritual awakening. So have you had one, NDE? A near-death experience. Uh, well, I had, there are actually two kinds of near-death experience. Okay. Um, there's a kind of the everyday near-death experience when you have a close encounter with death due to an accident or maybe a medical emergency. So often just having an encounter with death can have an awakening effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I certainly had, I've had that experience. I've had a couple of encounters with mortality through car accidents. Or I had a, a serious illness once. And uh, yet, yeah, you know, I found that for example, when I was seriously ill, which was about 15 years ago now, uh, it was the only time, fortunately, that I've, that I've ever been seriously ill and close to death in any way. But when I began to recover, I felt like I was a different person. I felt as though I had this renewed or this new sense of appreciation of things, which I'd never had before. Most of all, I was amazed by my body. Once my body began to heal, I thought, wow, this is amazing. There are just so many thousands of miracles taking place in my body right now just to return me to health. And it made me aware that every moment of the day, there are millions of miracles taking place in my body to keep me healthy and alive. We obviously take it for granted, but, you know, all kinds of microscopic processes that keep us alive from moment to moment. And yeah, I've never really forgotten that. I've never really forgotten the, you know, that the life is a gift that to be alive right now in this world is a privilege. Whatever's happening in my life, even if I'm in times of stress, you know, it's always there. The sense of gratitude is always there. For life itself and for my body and for all the, the people who are in my life. But I've never had the second kind of near-death experience, which is when people do clinically die for a short period of time. And they have a very remarkable experience when they perceive themselves leaving their bodies, looking down on the scene from above, and they drift through space, through the darkness towards a light, and they sometimes meet deceased relatives and so forth. So obviously that is a very powerful transformational experience. Yeah, you've written that NDEs almost always include mystical experiences of love, light, joy, along with out-of-body experiences in which people often meet benevolent spirit beings or deceased relatives. So the spiritual potential of an IME is intensified by the powerful transformative effects of intense mystical out-of-body experiences. So what is the most profound or mystical story that you've come across from somebody who has uh, experienced an OBE? It's probably... A, a guy called David Ditchfield, who I interviewed, and his NDE happened in 2006. Now, at that time, I'm sure, you know, he wouldn't mind me telling you that he was quite a depressed and frustrated person, about 40 years old, probably in his mid-40s. And he'd always sort of carried around this sense of failure. He'd never really got anywhere in his life, and he'd never found a fulfilling relationship with a partner. He'd never found a fulfilling job, and he used to drink a lot as well to, to alleviate his frustration. In 2006, he was saying goodbye to a friend on a train platform, and he went onto the train to say goodbye to to help him with the luggage. And as he left the train, as he was leaving the train, his coat, he was wearing a long coat, was caught in the doors of the train as it was leaving, as it was closing. And he couldn't take his coat off or pull it out of the doors. So the train actually set off with his coat trapped in the doors and pulled him along the platform. And so it's picking up speed all the time, and it pulled him underneath the train. He was actually lying on the track with the train going above him. And, you know, he experienced what I call a time expansion. He had a time expansion experience where those few seconds seemed to stretch into minutes. 
And he went to this, into this strangely calm, detached state where he realized that the coat was torn and his arm was actually hanging off by the by its sinews below his elbow. You know, his arm was obviously bleeding severely. So that was a very remarkable experience in itself. But somehow he survived. Somehow the train slowed to a halt and he was still under it. Somehow he, he just managed to survive on the, lying on the train track. But when he was removed from the train a few minutes later, he lost so much blood that he, he lost consciousness while he was being taken to hospital. And while he'd lost consciousness, suddenly he found himself in this different realm. He felt this amazing sense of calmness and, and oneness and, and joy. He felt that he was out in space surrounded by stars. And he became aware of the presence of beings who were, you know, they were, they were having a healing effect on him. They were around his body. They were sending him healing energy. And I think the most remarkable aspect of the experience was this incredible sense of peace and harmony that he felt. He felt that there were no problems, that everything in the universe was in a state of oneness and love was the essential reality. And he became more of a light as well, this incredibly bright, translucent light, which wasn't blinding, even though it was incredibly bright, it wasn't blinding at all. But it was just, he felt that this light was the source of creation. It was the source of the whole universe and so on. He had other experiences too, which is too detailed to go into, but all of this happened within the space of a, you know, probably within the space of a few seconds in normal time. But from his point of view, it lasted for hours. When he returned to normal consciousness, obviously he survived the accident and he wasn't seriously injured miraculously, but he became a different person. He felt like a different person. He felt that the frustration and depression he'd carried around with him all his life up till then had just dissipated. It just disappeared. He felt that he was glowing with this new kind of energy. And the people around him noticed it too. They'd say, something's happened to you. You know, you're a completely different person. It's as if you're glowing. I think his mother said to it, that to him. So, you know, it wasn't just a, some kind of self-delusion that he'd convinced himself about. It was something really deep-rooted, a major change. And he felt this new sense of purpose and meaning in his life too, and this new sense of gratitude. Probably the most remarkable way in which it manifested itself was that he started to compose music. He started to compose symphonies. He learned how to compose classical music. And he composed symphonies to try to convey the harmony and love and bliss he'd experienced during the, his NDE. He also started to paint to try to depict it on canvas, canvases too. And you can see, anybody listening can just uh, type in David Ditchfield and you can get to his website where you can see his paintings and listen to his music. So yeah, just a, an experience which lasted just a few seconds in normal time has transformed him for, for the rest of his life in an incredibly positive way. That is really, really, well, inspiring firstly. And it just uh, brings to mind another thing that I thought about a couple of uh, weeks back, maybe a month back. But I had this uh, realization that I've had before also that heaven and hell are not places that we go to, but they are states of mind. We can still be the same human being, but because of the narratives and the thoughts and the emotions going on, our life can be hell. Hmm. And we take a decision maybe to do meditation or we jump into a cold plunge, cold water, or we just look at life differently. We go for a walk or maybe a jog and all of a hmm. sudden, right, our, 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 as a combination maybe of our nervous system being regulated and, and our changed perspective, we experience what we would term as heaven. We, we look at life in a different way. So that was the first thing that I wanted to share. The second thing is, yeah. have you heard about the theory that when somebody experiences a very traumatic or NDE sort of experience, or maybe almost closing in on death, uh, there's an evolutionary phenomenon where the brain releases certain hallucinogenic chemicals, maybe DMT as well, to create, to induce those time-expanding sensations or maybe to reduce the pain, mm. or maybe even to help the person cope or pass through this transition period. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? 
I have heard about those theories, but to be honest, I'm a little bit doubtful about them. Firstly, there's no evidence that these psychedelic chemicals are released when a person is close to death. Some people say that these chemicals are actually inside us all the time, but if they are, they exist in such tiny quantities that they can't, they couldn't possibly produce changes in consciousness. So there would have to be this massive release of these chemicals when a person is close to death. But that's never been established. And also, if you look at DMT, for example, and the kind of experiences which DMT induces in a normal situation when a person is not close to death. And if you compare those DMT experiences to near-death experiences, they're not particularly similar. There are some similarities, but the similarities are basically because of the spiritual characteristics of both experiences. So both experiences feature feeling of joy, connection, heightened perception and so forth. The kind of characteristics which are specific which are specific to NDE, such as meeting deceased relatives or beings of light, um, traveling through a tunnel towards a light, and so forth. A life review in which you see your whole life played in front of you in a few seconds. You know, they, those are not features of uh, DMT or any other kind of psychedelic experiences like ketamine. So I think, you know, it's interesting, but I'm a bit dubious that you can explain near-death experiences in, in terms of DMT. Got it, got it. And You've written that oftentimes after these experiences, after these NDAs, people feel like they are born again. And yet this is not in a religious context, but a spiritual one. Have you heard of the Eleusinian mysteries of ancient Greece? I've heard about them. Yeah. I don't right, know right, too right. much about them. That, that was about uh, being born again, wasn't it? Yeah. So basically the Eleusinian mysteries, I'll just read a quick passage. They were held each year at Eleusis in Greece, right? 14 miles northwest of Athens. And they were so important to the Greeks that until the arrival of the Romans, the sacred way, the road from Athens to Eleusis was the only road in all of central Greece. The mysteries celebrated the story of Demeter and Persephone. I believe that was her daughter. They were like goddesses. God. But as the initiated were sworn to secrecy on pain of death as to details of the ritual. So it was like a top secret ritual. We don't know what form these rituals took. We know though that these those who participated in the mysteries were forever changed for the better and they no longer feared death. So some mm -hmm. theories say that they had some form of psychedelic substance. They were there was immersion into the into the oceans as well, but there were these step-by-step -step rituals that people, everyone could go, but once you experience it, you're not allowed to tell anyone else about it. Wow. Yeah. It's very interesting. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of um, the initiation of shamans as well in some indigenous cultures, which is also seen as a kind of rebirth. In some indigenous cultures, when they look out for signs of potential shamans in usually young men, then they look out for young men who are slightly, you know, psychologically unstable, very sensitive, creative, but also there's a look, quite a bit of turbulence inside them. In our culture, those, those, those would be seen as signs of psychological, maybe signs of psychosis, signs yeah. of psychological illness. But for them, it's a sign of potential shaman. And I think it's about kind of um, the potential shamans or the potentially spiritually awakened people or the people whose ego boundaries are kind of soft and fluid. They're more open to heightened experiences. They're more open to their own creative energies, the deep creative energies, the deep spiritual energies. They're more open to psychic experiences. Mm. So those are the people who are likely to be to undergo rebirth and to become shaman. Fascinating, fascinating. So what are your thoughts on using plant medicine like magic mushrooms or ayahuasca to experience a spiritual awakening? Because obviously not everyone can experience an NDE, but mm. everyone wants to go through the process of at least engaging with the prospects of death so that the life can be more fruitful and more rewarding. So what are your thoughts on the use of plant medicine? Yeah, I think they can be very useful. Um 
Yeah, particularly for people who've never been exposed to spiritual experiences before. Uh, just to give you one example, a friend of mine who was, um, he was quite a materialistic kind of guy. He had his own software company. He was quite successful. He had a sports car, a big house with a swimming pool. And he also thought that he, that he understood the world. He was quite skeptical about anything spiritual. He'd just say, oh, what a load of new age bollocks, say in England. <laughs> he was a school friend of mine. So I was, he knew I was interested in spirituality. He was like, oh, what a load of nonsense. But when he was in his 40s, I mean, one thing about him, he'd always had lucid dreams. That was the only kind of unusual feature of this guy. So when he was in his 40s, he went on a lucid dreaming course. And there was an option on the course to take ayahuasca, to have an ayahuasca session. Why not? I'll try ayahuasca. He tried it and it changed his perspective on reality completely because <laughs> he became aware that there were so many realms, dimensions of reality beyond the everyday world. He suddenly realized there was much, much more to life than he'd realized. So this whole new dimension opened up. And he also realized that life was strange and mysterious. So there was this new sense of humility that he didn't really understand life. And he also you know, had these experiences of oneness and the sense of rebirth through encountering his death. So he was a changed person after that experience. And, and he became interested in spirituality. And he came to me and said, Steve, you were right. <laughs> <laughs> you could tell me about this spirituality thing. So I recommended books to him. I took him to see spiritual teachers. So, you know, that one ayahuasca experience opened up a whole new world for him, literally. You know, mm -hmm. so I think that can happen a lot for people. There are many cases of people who spiritual journey has begun through taking psychedelics. But at the same time, I don't think psychedelics in themselves can be a spiritual journey. There's a famous quote from Alan Watts about psychedelics when he says, once you get the message, hang up. <laughs> you only need to get the message. And yeah. then, you know, you don't just hear it again. You can just explore spirituality through more organic ways, through meditation, mm -hmm. through service, through following spiritual teachers and so on. I don't think, you know, I have no doubt that psychedelics can be very, very beneficial, but I don't think psychedelics in themselves can constitute a, a healthy spiritual journey or spiritual path. Yeah, I think that's very true. It shows you the lay of the land. It shows you the terrain, but then you need to navigate to that terrain using something that's more sustainable and something that's going to, you know, really have a profound lasting impact on yourself. I love that in exactly. your book, you point out the difference between having a spiritual awakening experience and actually moving and making progress towards enlightenment, which can take months or maybe even years through rigorous practice or maybe discipline. What I wanted to mention, it sort of seems to escape me right now. Yeah, I did want to mention that, you know, earlier this year, I did experience uh, magic mushrooms and I had a profound experience and I don't want to get too much into it. But one of the things I clearly did remember, this was a couple of weeks before my mom's passing. I think there was definitely some kind of connection that the universe wanted me to experience this and really know the true nature of the universe and have a better understanding of what was about to happen or transpire. But I do remember feeling as if time had like time was nothing and you know just like a peacock when you see a peacock and when there's a crowd around a peacock the peacock somehow knows that people are watching it and so it unfurls its feathers in a beautiful way as if you know showing off so to speak or inviting people to look at its beauty the same way when i was deep in that vision i could see myself you know, zooming towards what looked like a kaleidoscope of geometric patterns that kept expanding continuously the yellows and blues and greens it felt as if the universe was showing me how boundless it truly is and how beautiful the universe is and more importantly how little i, I truly know and it was a humbling moment for me as i came out i kept telling 
telling myself mentally that how can I ever come back to this world the same person and not a changed yeah. changed man. Mm, so beautiful. yeah, totally powerful. But you know, throughout your book, you talk about the importance of ego dissolution. So what is the ego dissolution and why is it important on the journey? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ego dissolution is the main common theme in all of the experiences I researched. So what, one of the questions I wanted to answer was, you know, everybody goes through trauma at some point in their lives. Everybody goes through intense turmoil at some point in their lives, but not many people undergo transformation through turmoil. Post-traumatic growth is quite common. Research suggests that almost 50% of people go through traumatic events and later undergo some form of development, personal development. Mm -hmm. But the kind of dramatic transformation I'm talking about is obviously much more rare. So I wanted to think about, you know, why, why do some people undergo this transformation while others don't? And, you know, what is the process which takes place in this transformation? You know, from a psychological point of view, I don't think you can explain it in terms of brain chemistry. That wouldn't work. Um, but there obviously there is obviously some kind of psychological process which takes place. And I think that the psychological process is basically ego dissolution. So whether it's through intense stress, which breaks down the ego, like an earthquake breaks down a, a building, or whether it's a long process of loss and a long process of psychological attachments breaking down. And at the end of that process, so much is taken away. So many attachments are taken away. Just like a house, you know, when enough bricks are taken away, the house will collapse or the ego will collapse. So ego dissolution can take place through intense stress or through a long process of loss and detachment. But when most people go through ego dissolution, it is a purely negative experience. It's a breakdown. It's equivalent to psychosis because the normal ego breaks down and all the psychological structures and processes which sustain your mind dissolve away. So that's a very painful experience. But for some people, when that ego dissolves, a new self arises inside them. A new identity arises like a phoenix from the, from the ashes of their ego. And that new self is always a spiritually awakened, high functioning self, which appears to have been latent inside them, just waiting for the opportunity to emerge. So ego dissolution is a kind of breakdown, which can also be a shift up, if you like. So Steve, I loved your explanation of the concept of ego dissolution and the emergence of a new identity or a new self that seems to happen whenever someone goes through this process of ego dissolution. And I think that deep down, we all want to change, but we also want this change to be lasting, right? And not something that is temporary. And then, you know, things go back to normal once again. I feel that a lot of us worry that we will slip back to our old ways or the status quo. So do you relate to that as well? And how do you deal with this feeling of having that ego disillusionment moment, experiencing that emergence of a new identity, but then a month or two passes by and we go slip back to our old ways. Maybe the scientists might say, hey, your brain has changed. We can see it. There are new neural pathways and ways in which disparate parts of your brain are communicating with each other. But deep down, we feel that we are still the old self. Does that make sense to you? That's true. Um, that does make sense to me. But often um, change is so gradual mm. that you're not aware of how substantial it can be. I think often when you look, if you, if you look at yourself 10 years back, then you think, oh, yeah, I have changed. You compare yourself to how you were 10 years ago. You think, yeah, I've definitely changed. Even though from day to day, 
you may feel as though you're slipping backwards or not making much progress. But in mm-hmm. the long run, if you follow any spiritual path or if you embark on any spiritual journey, you will undergo slow incremental progress often so incremental that you're not aware of it consciously but at the same time you're right you know we can sometimes slip back but i think you know life is always an adventure and every experience we go through in life has you know a developmental effect on us every experience deepens us and widens us and you know that's why old people often have a special wisdom. So I think, you know, old age is a, an interesting process. Some people go in a more egoic direction. They become bitter, you know, they, yeah. they resent the loss of their health and their loss of their youth and the change in their appearance. But a lot of old people go in a more spiritual direction. Mm. And, you know, all the experience they've had has deepened them. The deeper you become, the less egoic. You become orientated around a deeper essence rather than the superficial ego identity so i think you know we can slip back but i think in general we always move towards greater spiritual development in our lives i love that i think a lot of our listeners i can just sense it are able to receive a lot of benefit and value from what you shared now you alluded to this a couple of uh, moments back but you say that sometimes the disruptive effects of awakening are so severe you write that they do resemble psychosis. As a result, it's mm-hmm. unfortunately not uncommon for shifters to be misdiagnosed with psychiatric disorders. They are sometimes prescribed medication and even committed. However, shifters almost always have a powerful inner knowing that they are undergoing a positive change rather than suffering from some form of disorder. So what are your thoughts on conditions like schizophrenia or psychosis? This could be that these people have uh, gone so far on their awakening journey that they might be stuck in some parallel dimension or are living another reality that we have no way of knowing or experiencing or Mm. understanding. That's interesting. I mean, there are certainly some parallels between uh, psychosis and spiritual awakening. There can be parallels, certainly, which is why Mm -hmm. the, the symptoms are often confused. Yeah. So when spiritual awakening is very explosive and very dramatic, it can produce disturbing effects. Again, I've used the analogy of an earthquake a few times, but it's a very accurate analogy. You know, an earthquake disrupts everything. So spiritual awakening can be like an earthquake, which disrupts your mind, even your body, you know? So we're getting into the territory of Kundalini awakening, you know, Kundalini Mm -hmm. awakens very suddenly dramatic. It's Mm -hmm. explosive, it's electrical, you know, it disrupts the mind and the body. Mm -hmm. So sometimes people who have spiritual, explosive spiritual awakenings like Kundalini, they report, you know, psychological problems, not being able to concentrate, not being able to sleep, you know, strange pains in their bodies, feelings of restlessness and incessant hunger, kind of distortions, uh, sexual sexuality and so on, unusual patterns of sexual feelings and so forth. So it's, it's all part of the disruptive process which takes place. And obviously, if you don't know anything about spiritual awakening, if you're not part of any spiritual tradition, you've never read any books about spirituality then you'll go to see a doctor you'll say doctor something strange has happened to me you know i'm having these strange physical symptoms i can't concentrate so forth the doctor will send you to see a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist will say hmm yes this sounds like a case of psychosis you know here's some medication and you know maybe we'll commit to you for a while in an institution mm-hmm. so that's not uncommon unfortunately because this confusion of the symptoms of spiritual awakening with the symptoms of psychosis but yeah. essentially spiritual awakening is not psychosis even though it resembles it to a certain point yeah and then people who go through the process of spiritual awakening they always know even though they feel a little bit confused even though they may feel disturbed by these symptoms they know that they are going through a positive transformational process so even you know 
I've interviewed many people who've been committed to institutions and they've managed to get out to talk themselves out because they knew they weren't psychotic. People who've been given medication but decided not to take it because they knew that they were undergoing a spiritual process. Mm-hmm. And in my experience, you know, even without uh, treatment or therapy, eventually explosive spiritual awakenings settle down. It's just a process that needs to play itself out. Just like an earthquake, you know, in very slow motion, the ground settles again and everything returns to to balance and stability again. Somebody that comes to my mind that might be going through a similar process is, you know, Kanye West, you know, the rapper, Kanye West. Yeah. He seems to be a person who is uh, very visionary, intuitive, creative, through whatever we know through his mainstream image, we obviously can't know him in person, but it seems like sometimes he goes on these epic, visionary, creative rants. Sometimes he goes on an ego trip and he's been diagnosed by doctors as psychosis. So he's definitely medicated right now, but it seems like he, you know, he knows deep down that it's not a mental condition and that he's definitely on the borderline of some, you know, yeah. Awakening, it seems like that. Possibly. I don't know too much about him, actually. My son mm. likes his music, but I'm not, I should you know, okay. really sit down and listen to his music. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I think creative people like him, I mean, creativity and spirituality are closely linked, Such and, and also, you know, psi abilities are closely linked to creativity and spirituality. So right. it's all part of that ego, which has soft boundaries, which is very open to energies and potentials. Mm-hmm. So I think he's probably a person with quite a fragile ego. Yeah, an ego with soft boundaries, which is very open to creativity, but also possibly open to mental instability. The thing about having a strong ego is it, you know, in a way, it's quite healthy because it makes you able to function in the world. You know, you can hold down a job, you can have relationships, you can <laughs> yeah. succeed, you can become wealthy yeah. because you have this strong ego that functions well in the world. But at the same time, you know, the strong ego, it cuts you off from creativity and spirituality. That's so, you know, creativity, unless you stabilize your creativity, unless you undergo spiritual development, which can integrate your creativity, you know, it can lead to, insta- it can be associated with instability. I mean, mm. it's the myth of the, the tortured genius, isn't it? It's a myth that, that suffering gives rise to great art. It doesn't really, but it's just that people who produce great art are often people who suffer psychologically because they have these, you know, fragile, mm. sensitive egos. Correlation causation. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I'd like to, um, you know, investigate Kanye West's, you know, his personality and his music in more detail. Yeah, it feels like sometimes, like I said, he goes on these rants where he's going on an ego trip. It's all about me, me, me. And sometimes it's completely different where he talks about his connection to God and spirit and the universe. Um, so it's, mm. it's fascinating to see such a person because he is definitely one of the most more creative type of rappers, although he does have his flaws just like any other human being. But yeah. it's interesting that you describe in in that way. And Steve, towards the end of the book, you recommend some techniques and methods that you've learned from the shifters for transforming suffering to transformation. And one of the methods you talk about is trying to contemplate and try to understand death, right? Because Mm. uh, I feel that we don't spend enough time thinking about death and then maybe on the battlefield or through bereavement or through some other instance when we come across death, we are in such Mm. a shock because we don't understand how to even comprehend it at all. Mm. You don't understand what is beyond. That's right. Yeah. Well, so many people I spoke to, you know, they underwent transformation partly or mainly due to an encounter with death. So, mm-hmm. for example, I spoke to a soldier who 
he was fighting in the Falklands War, which was a war that England fought with Argentina in the 1980s. And he mm-hmm. said that he was waiting on the battlefield to start the battle. He was waiting for orders to start firing. He was just so frightened. You know, he was just a young lad. He was 18 years old. And he suddenly decided that, you know, he suddenly realized that he could die, that, he, you know, there was, there was a chance that he would die the next few moments. And it changed everything. He, he went through so much turmoil and stress and fear that at a certain point he decided, you know, I've got no choice. I've just got to let go. I'm just going to let go of the fear and just accept whatever happens. If I die, whatever happens is going to be you know that's reality so he just accepted the situation he went this sudden he underwent shifted into a different state of consciousness in which he felt timeless and eternal and he felt one with everything Mm -hmm. so an encounter with death like that can in itself that can change everything people often talk about a diagnosis of cancer yeah um in my book i I mentioned the case of an indian actor irfan khan you know him irfan khan yeah yeah he He, died died of cancer last year i think yeah he gave a remarkable interview when he was ill with cancer a couple of I think it was a couple of years before he died mm-hmm. and he said that it's changed everything you know the diagnosis of cancer has just made the world seem such a different place and it's enabled him to just accept life as it is and to stop wishing for to stop living in the future just to be purely present centered he seems to have undergone yeah. a, a spiritual transformation and it happens a lot you know that's why I think it's so important to contemplate death because becoming aware of the reality of death can be transformational Mm. Um, I think that happened to me when I mentioned earlier when I about 15 years ago when I was seriously ill. It was mm-hmm. the first time I'd really been aware of the reality of death. And also the first time I was really aware of the preciousness and the fragility of life. Mm-hmm. So, you know, well, obviously we don't have to directly encounter death to do that. You can get the same effect through contemplating death. I like to visit cemeteries um, yeah. because on the one hand, they're very peaceful places, beautiful places. But I always feel like that, you know, in cemeteries, the voices of the people in the, in the graves are saying to me, you know, you're only here for a, a short time. That's life true. is precious. Life is temporary. Life is fragile. Just make the most of it. You know, even if there is some form of afterlife, which I think there is, mm-hmm. life in this world, in this body is an incredibly precious and fragile gift. Mm-hmm. So we've got to appreciate it. It's very, very true. And I'm sure people listening to this episode right now or maybe watching it are also considering the importance and purpose and value of contemplating or thinking about death every once in a while because, you know, who knows, right? But at the same time, you might live for 25, 30 more years and all of those years, every moment that you live will then become a gift that you can then enjoy without having to worry about, you know, here's my goals. I've not achieved all of my goals. Here's that person. This person is doing better than me. They have a house and- the family, right? You start to think about the most profound things in life, which is happiness and joy and the fact that you might be living a pain-free existence at the moment. Yeah. People often say that one person told me this. He said that when you face death or when you recover from an encounter with death, like a diagnosis of cancer or a serious accident, then the trivial things become more trivial and the important things become more important. So the important things like love, creativity, spirituality, authenticity, they become the only things that are really important. And the trivial things like, you know, buying a new car or, you know, competing with your neighbors, trying to succeed and so forth. Things which are not so important become even more trivial. And I think your book comes at a very important time in our collective evolution as humanity, because 
you know, the last two years, you talk about dilation of time, the last two years, nobody knows how it went by, you know, beginning from the end of 2019 till right now, a lot of people are wondering what happened, right? Uh, because the time just passed by so quickly. And a lot of people, including myself, have gone through a lot of trauma and challenges and stress and difficulties and turmoil. So do you feel that we collectively are going through TTT? And then what signs do you see in our collective that we are undergoing an evolution or an awakening? Mm. It's difficult to say whether we have undergone TTT, but I am pretty sure that we, you know, well, sometimes TTT takes a while to manifest itself, but I'm pretty sure that we will become aware of uh, TTT in the future. I think at the moment we're still caught up in the, we're slightly yeah. sort of, you know, just in the aftermath of it and still, yeah. still caught up in the midst of it. Yeah. But, um, you know, I sometimes think of the pandemic and the lockdowns as a, certainly as a collective crisis, you know, when individual crises occur, they almost always bring some degree of personal development along with all the trauma and pain. And I think collectively it's bound to have a similar effect. Um, also on a communal level, I think one thing that I think is very tangible about the pandemic and the lockdowns is that communities have become more integrated. There's a, more of a sense of togetherness, partly because people have had to root themselves more in their community, more in their homes, and they become more con connected to their neighbors. But that often happens after crises. You know, crises, crises often produce communal post-traumatic growth. You know, communities yeah. knit together at a higher level of integration. I think on a global level, that will also be an effect of the pandemic. Globally, we will be more integrated. Mm -hmm. That's probably happened already. But certainly, you know, there's a parallel with the climate emergency that is a transnational phenomenon. The pandemic mm -hmm. is also a transnational phenomenon. Mm -hmm. You can only really deal with it on a transnational level effectively. So, you know, I'm sure that in a few years, we will realize that we have undergone some post-traumatic growth growth, even some form of transformation as a result. And perhaps it is a part of our evolutionary movement, our evolutionary development. I think there are signs that over the past few decades, maybe even going back 200 years or so, that the human race has undergone some collective spiritual development some degree of evolution in terms of consciousness. I write about that a lot in my book, The Leap, because I suggest that there is a kind of evolutionary leap which is taking place now. And it's a shift, basically a shift into a more expansive awareness, a shift into a more connected state, a less separated state. That I, and I think that's happening on a global level. So there are lots of challenges in the world. We are living, you could say that we're living in a time of crisis. But I think the crisis and the challenges in themselves may be having an awakening effect. So, you know, we may be going through a, a collective spiritual awakening due to the turmoil and crises we're facing. Thanks a lot for sharing all the stories and anecdotes and the learnings that you have come across and that you write about in your book. We are now at the last round for today, sort of like a rapid fire round. It's called the wisdom round. So what is the best piece of advice that you have received? Best piece of advice was from a spiritual teacher I used to visit here in Manchester, England, a guy called Russell Williams. He gave me a great deal of guidance, but one thing I always remember and practice almost every day, he said that when you are in your house every day, you know, you're touching lots of inanimate objects, you're opening doors and opening drawers and cupboards and so forth, you're walking on the carpet. He says, treat every inanimate object with tenderness as if it's a living being, you know, touch it slowly with care and attention. So I sometimes think that when I'm opening doors, you're carefully, slowly touching things with attention, walking upstairs slowly and carefully. That's a great form of spiritual practice. If you could turn back time and spend one hour with someone living or dead, who would it be? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would be George Harrison of the Beatles. 
I love George Harrison because he was one of the first, uh, well, really one of the first people in Western culture to adopt Eastern philosophies and to popularize these philosophies. He was a very humble and humorous person. And, you know, he was a great musician as well. I'd love mm. to speak to him about his spirituality and his music. And what is the one thing you do in the morning these days or maybe in the evening that has improved the quality of your life? I always exercise in the morning, some form of exercise. Sometimes I do yoga. Sometimes I go for a run. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, starting the day with some form of exercise is, is fantastic. It puts me in a really, it really attunes me to myself and to the world around me. And it feels as though it connects me to my essential self. Well, firstly, I love your book. How can someone get a hold of your book? Uh, where can they find more information about you and uh, about the book? The best place to go is my website, which is stephenmtaylor.com. That's Stephen with a V, uh, M for Mark, stephenmtaylor.com. So there's information about my books and uh, there are also articles and poems and videos and so forth. Wonderful. We'll have the link up in the show notes on Action Tribe. By the way, do you have your book on Audible yet? Or Not yet. It, it is going to be on Audible, but I don't think it's ready yet. I'm not sure when it will be, but soon. Perfect, perfect. Looking forward to that. Action Tribe, I hope you enjoyed this session. If you liked it, then make sure that you share this with your friends, with your family, so that more people can get to know about the spiritual awakening that all of us are going through and how to deal with it. If you'd like to go for your own spiritual journey and experience breathwork, then drop in for our next breathwork session from anywhere in the world. As long as you have an internet connection, go to my7chakras.com forward slash drop in, my7chakras.com forward slash drop in. We'll use movement, mantra, music, and breathwork to relax your body and calm your mind. So Steve, thank you so much for joining us on this episode, talking to us about extraordinary spiritual awakenings and taking us one step closer to a human revolution. Really appreciate your time. You're welcome. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. It was great. Thank you for listening to My 7 Chakras at My7Chakras.com That is My S-E-V-E-N Chakras.com 